create a culture that where you're not creating, you're cracking the whip all the time. Sometimes you need to do, but create a culture. Hey, it's okay to fail, learn from it. Let's move on, apply from it, and then try to scale it. So that's the other part around leveraging effectively an enablement team that's aligned to your go-to-market strategy, that's aligned to your hiring strategy, and and really can create a framework and then really good content based upon where each of the sellers are at. So meeting the seller where they're at. In many cases, they just need a playbook for creating pipeline. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Over the past couple of months, there has been one challenge that's been coming up with my guests very, very frequently. Deal slippage, deals pushed out, pipeline slippage, whatever name that you give to it, it's the process of whenever a deal that is stated to close at the end of the quarter eventually moves into the next quarter. As such, we wanted to pull together multiple perspectives on how you can prevent it and some of the tactics that you can deploy to try and address it. Enjoy. Super interesting, like how you like start to approach that. So um, if we think, and, and what actually comes to mind is getting to, to, in the stages before getting to that point, and I wonder whether what you were talking about before in terms of consistency starts to tie into this. So as it's getting to those later stages of, of, the, of the sales process, one of the biggest things that comes up a lot on the, on the podcast is around deals actually slipping. And how do you approach um, either preventing that, reducing that? How do you approach that problem? Yeah. So well, let's talk MedPick for a second, Medic, MedPick. I do not believe that Medic or MedPick is a sales methodology. I love it, but it's not a methodology. It's a checklist to audit your deal. And the best, the best thing that it gives you is clarity into reality. Like, do, do I know who the economic buyer is? Yes or no? Am I talking to them? Yes or no? Right? Am I engaged with them? Great. It's like, I don't even know who they are. I at least need to accept reality and now work towards developing a relationship with my economic buyer. So this whole thing of deal slipping, it starts with uh, us understanding a lot of the details in Medic or MedPick and having clarity on them. And I think MedPick is better because it's it's the paperwork process (laughs) that's missing in Medic, which is why deals slip. And especially now, part of where deals are slipping is because the CFO is ultimately the decision maker on every single deal. And it's got to go to this like buying committee inside of the finance team for final approval. And that is slowing everything down. So the question for the sales rep is, uh, hey, when's this deal supposed to close? Is anybody going on vacation? Are all the people that we need to talk to going to be around and working? What does the paperwork process look like from a procurement perspective, which is both legal and infosec? Like it's not one of those two things. It's legal and infosec. And what is the process to get budget reauthorized? Because people are like, oh, I have budget for this. Like, yeah, you do until you actually want to go sign the contract. And then they tell you that you don't have budget anymore. So like, you have to get budget reauthorized. How long is that process going to take? Has your buyer actually bought stuff before? 
And when was the last time they bought stuff? Did they buy it 18 months ago when the economy was a little bit different? Did they buy stuff 18 you know, days ago and they know what it's like to do so now in their current environment, inside of their current company with the current players involved? Most of the answers to those questions by your sales rep, if their sales rep's really honest, are going to be, I don't know, right? And so now, great, we've accepted reality. <laughs> We're not <laughs> fooling ourselves, which is the most important thing. Don't fool yourself. And so now we can talk about that deal and say, okay, well, we got a 90% chance of getting it done, but this quarter it might be 30%. And then now, because you have this checklist of things that you actually don't know the answers to, now you can begin a strategy of getting the answers to those questions. Um, and unfortunately, our main points of contact oftentimes on our deals don't have the answers to the questions. They think they know the answer to the question, but they don't actually know the question because things are just changing inside of companies. So the whole thing on like these deals slipping is be really clear and honest with yourself about reality, about what you know and you don't know, and then work towards getting answers to those questions and knowing the backup plans to those questions. In the past, we talked about it as win-loss, right? But I think the slip pipeline is truly sort of this goldmine of information that can be a leading indicator to go around win-loss. Because are you just taking the can down the road or are you truly losing yeah, that helps uh, the pipeline. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such an interesting point, um, uh, particularly on 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 deal slippage. Um, uh, you know, we ran our recent analysis, and I think from the, what we analysed, is something like thirty nine percent of of deals have slipped. That's an all time high based on as long as we've been running this analysis. And so it's um, it's always it's always been an ongoing challenge and. What was fascinating to me as you were talking about it was really the acceptance of it, um, as opposed to you know there's an inevitability that we're never going to be able to stop it, right? I don't think we're ever going to be able to get to the point where deal slippage is at zero percent. But it's what can we learn from that? And then also, um, I wonder whether it is going to whether for you guys it will lead into the point of uh, how do we start to prevent this. Um, and what are the you know what are the characteristics of a type of deal um, that um, you know we've seen deals like this slip in the past, mm -hmm. and we're seeing another one come in now, almost in a preventative way. Look at it yeah. from that perspective, and and sharing that mm -hmm. insight with your your sellers. Then of this is probably going to slip. We've seen this before. I believe we can put our resources, allocate our resources more efficiently, and impact the win rate directly. Right, so we have seen this play out in a in a smaller scale, in a different scale. But I feel this is something that can that can happen at every company if you if you get disciplined about it and and have the the infrastructure to support it, and of course the leadership sales leadership commitment to investigate it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And is that could that be an area where potentially? Um, uh, uh, businesses can start to look to leverage something like AI within within the CRM or or, or within the tech stack as a whole, mm -hmm. um, because of the sheer amount of data that it can that it can work through and it can learn from to obviously yeah. then be spitting out that information at the end. Absolutely, and and then they all, where my last rule was setting up for deal desk, and that's kind of what we did is because the the velocity and the models deals are so unique that you almost need a custom algorithm to really make sense. And this is where we have in the tech stack, there are AI deal scoring, right? Every tool will claim have a deal scoring. 
The challenge you run into is oh, what is the algorithm-based startup that tends to be this proprietary platform? So how do I drive actions against it? Because the reps aren't going to do something and say, hey, this tool says the score is this, therefore you should do this. And they want a little bit more than that. I would want a little bit more than that. So it's when you when you're if you have the resourcing or if you're looking for an AI use case to me, that's a great use case because you can do that relatively quickly. If you already have the data from CRM, you already have the variables that you know are going to be indicating in, in the, that are dependent on where the deal slippage and the win rate dependent on. So that I would recommend everybody sort of do some of that and you will be amazed how quickly it can be stood up in this technology world and how quickly it start to give you operational insights. If you value selling, then you can typically get through and be successful in a downturn because if you're either adding value and it's creating some sort of yield for the organization, you're solving a business issue or you're not. And if you're not, then you're going to be left on the sideline and you may get lucky every once in, in a while. Um, you either got to figure that out and figure out what your value prop is to, to an organization and ultimately validate that value throughout the whole cycle of the, the relationship with the customer or um, you already have it in place and you're, you're, you're experiencing some level of success. So those are some things that, you know, at a macro level and at a sales execution level that are really, really critical. And those are hard conversations sometimes because you don't never want to, you know, use any of that as an excuse from a sales perspective, but as a, at the leadership level, you do want to have, real conversations grounded in the truth and get to the root cause of what's preventing some of the things uh, that are preventing you maybe from scaling and growing efficiently. Mm. I, I, and on that note, um, it's something that I did want to ask and because it's really around that point of scalability and something that we were uh, looking at in our analysis was around quota attainment and it comes up a lot with, with C- uh, CRS and VP of sales that I talk to because it's this classic 80-20 situation where we've got 20% of our sellers at the top and you know 80% at the bottom that aren't necessarily um, consistently hitting their quota, right? Yeah. And um, and and to your point, you know, it's not necessarily around just just you know we're just going to keep chopping off the bottom and continue adding more in the top, hoping that this is going to um, that this is going to get better. So. From that point of view of scaling and growth, you obviously want to create, and don't want to take words out of your mouth, but you want to create that scalable foundation, right? Um, so how are you approaching that within Phenom around quota retainment? And how are you, um, I guess, not only investing more in your top performers, but also how are you working with your, you know, I, I don't want to say lower performers, but you, you know, the middle of the pack to help get them onto the next level? Yeah, and to your point, it's a lot easier when you have a smaller team that's engaged and there's a dynamic there with smaller teams that can create a, a big, pretty big outcome. When you start to scale and grow, um, I had mentioned earlier in our conversation around just adding humans to the equation. It really works uh, unless you have um, a really deep understanding of why it will work. So the first thing that comes to mind when I think about like that quota attainment is I, I look at the profile, like, you know, we use, we use, um, Octus. It's an, it's a, an assessment tool. Um, it's one of the things that it does, but it actually looks at the, 
top performers of the organization. And then we go to an assessment. And when we interview people, we, we, we measure against our top performers and then hire against that, the top performer characteristics. And also, it's really a cool assessment because it helps you interview appropriately and, and, and maybe shows you based upon the results where you should dig in. So net-net, have conviction and clarity around your, your hiring profile. Um, have a good, solid process and be disciplined around it. Um, and don't deviate from it. It, you might, in some cases, it's okay to experiment, you know, and, and you don't ever lose if you're learning, but try to, you know, once you have a process, stick with the process and where we start to go, you know, astray, you know, as, as leaders or organizations is when we, we lose discipline, we lose discipline in the sales process. We lose discipline in the hiring process. We lose discipline in our go-to-market process. It's hard. Um, but those that are disciplined and operate that way have the most success. So that's the first thing. And I would say, you know, we don't really, uh, in many cases, help the sellers. Um, so you have to create a culture of it's okay to fail. And it, you know, as mentioned earlier, I, one of my strong beliefs is that you never lose if you learn. Um, and if you're learning and you're actively applying those learnings to the next uh, opportunity, um, then you're going to get better. So create a culture that where you're not, you know, um, creating, uh, you know, you're cracking the whip all the time. Sometimes you need to do, but create a culture. Hey, it's okay to fail. Learn from it. Let's move on. Apply from it, and then try to scale it. So that's the set, that's the other part around leveraging effectively an enablement team um, that's aligned to your go-to-market strategy, that's aligned to your hiring strategy, and and really can create a framework, uh, and then really good content based upon where each of the sellers are at. So meeting the seller where they're at. In many cases, they just need a playbook for creating pipeline. Uh, in other cases, they need a playbook for executing well against uh, a sales process, right? Or proper discovery, whatever those, those areas are. So creating that. And then I think the first line leaders um, are really critical roles in really any organization, in particular in sales and the sales organization, because they're... They have to manage, but their job is a coach. So, uh, and, and they need to be adding value, not just reporting up. Um, they need to be adding value down to the individual seller and understanding the skills um, and where they're really strong and maybe where they're a little weaker, where you can help fill in. It might be different for each one of your performers. If you can do a lot of these analytical tasks, fantastic. Going into a leadership role, all of a sudden, you need to be a great communicator. You need to be a great motivator, so on and so forth. So. Um, what's your advice generally in those situations? Because sometimes some people just suit certain roles and um, and sometimes that roadmap requires them to develop those other skills. Do you factor that into it or I'd love to get your point of view? Yeah, look, I'm going to be a first-time CEO. So, you know, I have to consider who do I know that has been a first-time CEO and now maybe they're a second or a third-time CEO. So I try to leverage that network and talk about their experience. I try to learn from them. What are the failures that they made? What are the things that they you know, learned from? So I think we all need a mentor, regardless of, of who you are. We all need a mentor because there's people that have trodden the path already, and they've already had that experience. And why go it on your own? Like, Why not leverage other people's experiences? That's why people feel compelled to teach, or they feel compelled to write a book, or they feel compelled to do a podcast. It's all to help other people. 
and to share your experiences and and what other people can glean from those experiences. Look, if I've helped anybody uh, think about their career, then this is a successful podcast to me. Like it's worth my time uh, spending that just thinking of how I can help other people. And so I, th I think those are soft skills that I've certainly developed, you know, over a career. Uh, but it's also something that not everybody approaches things as a servant leader. Like I've had CEOs who I consider more toxic, where uh, they like to scream and yell and, you know, pound their fist. And that's not that doesn't inspire people the way that I think about this. Not that's not going to motivate and drive people. You may have people that are afraid of you that are fearful, but you're not motivating people. And you're not going to look back on their career and think, wow, I learned so much from that person. You know, what you learn is what not to do, in my experience, uh, because that's not the type of leader I am. I'd rather be more of that servant leader that I'm talking about and going out and serving people, finding opportunities to help other people. And the more people who are successful around you, the more success you're going to see. Because as a CEO, like I can't be successful unless everybody around me is successful. So I need to find ways to help them be successful. It could be, again, product oriented. It could be sales operational, you know, things. It could be defining new territories. It could be going to market in new, you know, regions. Um, it could be focusing on an industry. It could be, you know, transitioning from on-premise to cloud. Um, having done all of those things, like that's why I feel like uh, the potential is there. And if you have the positive mindset and you marry that with the potential, I think great things can happen. And so that's where I, I feel like it's, you know, you, those are there, there's a ton of soft skills that we all need. Uh, but the best thing to do is find somebody who has those skills and then talk to them and, and mentor with them and identify ways that they were able to be successful. Uh, certainly none of us are perfect and we all have, you know, flaws and weaknesses. Uh, but I, I think if we're all out to help each other, if we're finding opportunities to serve one another, uh, regardless of the role that you're in, that's where you get the most uh, happiness. You know, that's where happiness uh, is derived is from helping other people. You were talking about the lagging indicators and 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 the um, I think a lot of people listening will be feeling like resonating with this idea of oh well let's just add more in let's just you know more activities more calls more emails in a marketing world it's well let's just spend more marketing dollars and we're just going to get more at the end right and and it doesn't work out that way and you you um uh kind of rhetorically pose the question that leaves leaders asking like why why is that the case why do you think that is the case? Um, and what would you say are the leading indicators of of, of revenue for those reps? Yeah, I, I think the lagging is obviously revenue, revenue influence, close rates. Um, what I'll start with the what are leading indicators. I think it's case by case. It's a little bit different, but I do think that sure, there's conversion metrics on there. I'll give you. I'll give you an example. So. Uh, I'm analyzing the data of a $12 million marketing agency that sells, you know, high-end Drupal website developments to, you know, Fortune 1000 type companies. Okay. So they know their target accounts. They know what they sell. Um, when I look at the data beneath the data beneath the data, and I understand that they're making, let's just say, in the past six months, they have a small team. Past six months, they made 3,900 dials. 
Okay. Whether that's too much or too little is a completely subjective case by case, right? Some people just might be like, oh, there's not making enough volume. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, totally, maybe. Uh, or maybe not. And then you go a layer deeper and you say, okay, well, what's their dial to connect rate? Huh, that's interesting. So the dial to connect rate is on 3,900 dials, they've only had 79 connections. That's abysmally low. That's 2%. Okay. So that means that they have an issue connecting with who they deem as their decision maker. Okay. Um, you look a, a layer deeper and you realize that uh, of the connections they had, they're only converting, I think the number was 1% of those conversations um, or connections. All right. That's really, really bad. So a 1% conversion on, on a 2% connection on 3,900 dials, that's six conversions roughly on 3,900 dials. Okay, so if I look at those numbers, what that tells me is a couple things. And again, there's more layers we can get into, but it tells me a couple things. One, you have probably poor data, or you've not determined what is the best, best number to dial. Right? So you've not done the heavy lifting on what dial should we be going, or your data source is bad. Right? Maybe you're using Zoom Info or you're using Slintel, which is attached to Sixth Sense, or you're using Apollo's data or whatever your data might be, your segment data is not great. And so you have a poor data process. And so what that tells me, I can reverse engineer and I can look at based on the volume of dials you're doing and the conversion, the connection rates you're getting and the conversion rate on those connections that you're getting, I can tell that you're going to have a conversion every 29 days. That is unsustainable. Jimmy, not his real name. But I'm going to look and be like, this is just unacceptable. We can't keep accepting this. And we've been doing this for six months. And you don't know how to look at the data on the front end. And the data tells you a story. And so you don't need fancy tools. You just need, you just need data that tells you what the numbers are on the front end. And then you need to know how to turn that data into a story that helps you solve a problem. And so it's a data problem, et cetera. Here's the layer deeper. I, I go to the 78 connections they had. And I found that 42% of those was either a referral AKA it was not me, wrong person, or it was uh, wrong person in the organization, no referral. So what you're telling me is even of the 3,900 dials I had and the 78 connections I had, only 30 something of those were relevant. So I have a buyer persona issue. I'm going after the wrong title, the wrong buying committee. I think this person makes the decision, but 42% shows me it's not. So who are they referring me to? That needs to become the new buyer persona or the new key buyer in my buying committee, right? And those are the things, those are the leading indicators of lagging success. Of course, their revenue's down. Of course, they're not closing, right? That was a lot. I could go deeper, but that's just, that's, that's the things you have to look at is, is what are the things leading up to that? The other aspect is that's all objective. You have to look at subjective. So something that we install in every company, and this is probably the best, most practical advice you could have in your company right now, is you need to have a daily shutdown scorecard. I literally believe in this so much that I built an internal software for our VPs that how, this is how we manage sales reps for all of our clients. Have a daily shutdown scorecard where they have to manually report. I know, you could have APIs all you want. <laughs> but they have to manually report and go find their own data and put it in. Why? Because they have to be personally accountable to their numbers. Yes, you can go pull those reports in Salesforce. It's easy. 
but I want to have them manually go find it themselves, put it in my scorecard so that they are personally accountable to the leading indicators. Simultaneously, one of the other questions that we ask in the daily shutdown scorecard is subjective answers, right? So objective is your production. Subjective is how do you feel? What are you struggling with? What are you experiencing on the ground, boots on the ground in your conversations? What do you feel like you're getting hung up here? And they will oftentimes tell you intuitively what they believe is wrong. It might be wrong, might be right, doesn't matter, but they are giving you data as a sales leader who's monitoring these manual daily shutdown scorecards on what they need. And if you're not giving them what they need, then it's on you. If we take that assumption that a lot of the sellers are in a similar mindset of, you know, it's activity, 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 it's, it's not that genuine, it's not as authentic. But for your sellers, how do you go about, um, you know, um, at coaching them? You know, are, are you doing it through processes and frameworks like some leaders do? Are you doing it through like one-to-ones and do, like building relationships? I, I'm really curious how you kind of go about embedding your your view and your um, your approach to selling to really get your sellers on board with it so they get to that point of, oh my God, th- this is common sense. Yeah. Well, I love so many things you said and I want to be really clear. I don't think anything I do is really that special. I just have the the opportunity, the gift, whatever, the experience of when you've gone from selling $20 table dances to $50,000 you know, pieces of software at a SaaS company, right? To $30 million naming rights, um, sponsorship deals for MGM, where there's, you know, Louis Vuitton and things on the pyramid when you fly in to $500 million worth of, you know, TCV at a time. It's that I've been in the trenches for 25 years and I'm starting to learn that I have mastery in a way that works for me. Um, and some of those nuances are things that can be taught. And so I'm probably four years into this journey of learning how to package that knowledge and help train coach, mentor others. And I have to give credit to when I was at Atos and still trying to figure out what was next, you know, the head of inside sales there was a friend. I had coached her um, on deals uh, and she was honest. She's like, hey, I'm struggling. We've got 25 juniors. They're super smart. We got all the tech stack. They're making the phone calls. They're getting out the emails. We're not finding any deals. And I was like, oh, well, I can help with that. I'm not, you know, at that point, I didn't have any training certifications. I was going through a Harvard program to become a facilitator uh, and, a, and a, you know, certified trainer. I said, so I don't really know what I'm doing, but I can take everything that was really hard for me to learn, the things where I had to fail forward over and over and over again. And what if I just package them into bite-sized pieces of content, PowerPoints, exercises, and we kind of do some virtual trainings and then we'll get everybody together in the room so they can practice. Because what I have found is, so much of sales is by yourself. Now, maybe you're lucky. Maybe you have a sales manager at a certain point who comes to meetings with you. I was never that person. I was out there on my own more times than I can count. And so I failed a lot, but I failed forward. And so we started taking some of those lessons. And the beautiful part about early career starters is they're like sponges. And so we just did all sorts of things from role play to how do you cold call to how do you ABC test the subject headings to help them develop that authenticity muscle and how they communicate. We had to do things like, okay, here's what the marketing slicks say. God love the marketers. They're great. But here's how you have to translate that into human language for based on the role of the person you're talking to. So we did a lot of that work over a year and a half, two years. And in that process, what happened was, number one, it gave me the confidence that I could teach this and that I love teaching that. Um, So that in itself was a gift. And then separately... I started a mentor program with the juniors, with the very senior business developers, right? The hunters that are going out there. 
And a lot of these folks I was also coaching behind the scenes. So I was starting to see the gaps that were common among many sellers. So many sellers had a technical expertise or they'd been in sales forever and they were great relationship builders. Because I started part of my career in data and then later as a financial analyst, I developed the skill of building business cases. I was never the most technology fluent person, right? I would say my technology mindset or knowledge base is a few inches thick and miles wide. My superpower is understanding a company's business drivers and then marrying my company's products or services to that. And so very early on, I started making three to five page slides, business cases, whole bunch of assumptions, right? Um, but I, and it was always enough to put forward. And what I would found in that process was the naysayers at a company who didn't want to work with me would throw up on it and poke holes on it. And in my head, I was like, gotcha. Because when they're trying to prove me wrong, they were teaching me how I needed to update this business case to make it smarter and better. And now we're in collaboration instead of working against each other. And then as you go up the food chain, you bring the right business case into CFO that says, hey, you're talking to Wall Street every quarter and you're missing this, this, and this. And I think we can accelerate your path to get there. The floodgates go open. Every seller on the planet has been told, sell upstairs, right? Talk to the C-suite. I have found very few sellers have the muscle memory and the confidence and the vernacular to do so succinctly that they get those conversations over and over and over. Learning how to develop a business case helps with that. And what was really cool with the senior sellers is at first I thought, oh, they're going to think I'm crazy. So I'd tell friends behind the scene, like, hey, we're going to do this little webinar about building a business case. I know it helped you. I know it helped Susie. Just come to it because I'm trying to grow my muscles as a coach. I'm trying to lean into authenticity. The coaching and training was something I did outside of Atos. It's a little scary to show yourself in that way. And the company come for support. And what started happening was those webinars, which we did weekly, I call them Wisdom Wednesdays, started getting forwarded out all over the company. Within two weeks, we had 300 people showing up to these things. And so literally, I was making it up as I go along. And then what would happen is the feedback afterwards was awesome. That was helping people. Grown, mature, seasoned sellers were coming and saying, hey, my deal has been stuck for three months. Can you help me develop one of those business casey thingy things? I'm like, absolutely, right? And we'd spend a half a day and I'd give them homework. Hey, go find this. Go to the earnings. Google these words. What are the three things? And we started templatizing this process. And they started getting more customer engagement their sales cycle started shrinking, right? And that was how I ultimately ended up um, moving up into leadership because one day the CEO of America's called me. He's like, what on earth is going on? I was, a little, I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, so two years of inside sales, almost no results. I know you've been hanging out and coaching and training and doing some of that Jamie stuff with them. We have more qualified pipeline from the juniors of your 16 juniors than we do from the 350 sellers in North America that I pay 250 ahead to. What is going on? And I was like, well, I'm just thinking of what was hard for me. And I put it in PowerPoints. And then we go down to Dallas and they practice, right? Think boiler room, right? I get on a call. They get on a call. Um, things like teaching them the process of starting with research and understanding the industry pain points, right? So that they can talk relative. And, and we just kind of, you know, I just start showing him stuff. And he's like, great. So here's what we're going to do. In, head of inside sales is leaving. You've got the juniors and we're going to give you the seniors now too. And I was like, oh, great. So suddenly now I had two teams underneath me. And it was ironic because 25 years in sales, I was kind of looking to get out, right? Burnt out and just the chase of the deal no longer fed me with the way helping people did as a coach and as a trainer. And then overnight, these two sides of me that have been so separate, that barrier vanished or vanished. 
right? And so I guess I'm a, when I say I do things a little differently, it's that I show up to my team as a leader, as a coach and trainer first. I just happen to have a domain expertise of selling technology and services for 25 years. And so it's a very slightly different shift in context. But if I circle back to your question of how do I get you know, other folks on board with this, I'm old school, right? I was at Unisys. Um, the first thing I said was, I got to get my team together. And they said, well, we're not traveling right now, right? COVID has just happened and travel budgets. I'm like, no, 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 no. We have a billion dollar target and you've spent how much money on my budget? I need everybody in the room. And so we just, we flew to Dallas. I took a week planning what this workshop was going to be. As I got the agenda socialized, people throughout the company were like, hey, I've got some account managers. I, I've got some consultants that are new that, or some junior folks. People were struggling a little bit. Can we send them to your training? And I was like, sure. And before you knew it, we had a large group of people. I think I called the program um, you know, being the leader that, that Unisys needs you to be, right? And so it was a, a way for me to take the proprietary leadership training curriculum that I had created over many, many years and on weekends and PTOs and vacations, and now apply it to sales. Because all of the trainings I've been fortunate to go through in my life were amazing. I did not see myself as a leader until very recently because of some subconscious beliefs that I had had, right? Despite winning these deals and despite leading teams, somewhere in this subconscious Jamie Consman brain with the C-suite aspirations, I wasn't considered really a leader until I got to that level, despite all the things I've read, right? Lead at any level. It's not about the title, right? So as I worked through that for myself, I realized I'm not alone. Many women, many sellers who've been individual contributors their whole lives hadn't necessarily thought of themselves as leaders and hadn't strengthened some of the leadership skills that could help them accelerate their deals, accelerate their careers, their time to revenue. And so I took the, you know, this team through a two and a half day training where we did things like, what is your leadership style? How do the best leaders lead and inspire loyalty? And then how, the worst qualities you've ever experienced. And then what would happen if we you know, applied those best qualities to how we sell and interact with customers? What would happen? How would the experience start to shift? Right? And, and, and then the collaboration, all I do is facilitate and ask the questions. The learning happens from their insights in the room. And then we do the fun stuff, right? Like breaking boards and the hot coals and all of that kind of crazy stuff. But uh, by the end of it, it has shown me that no matter people's career stage, there's value in that kind of team building, that kind of structured education for professional growth. You know, Martha Beck uh, was one of Oprah's first life coaches. And she has expression that is how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so to me, that gives me permission to coach and train whether it's in groups or individuals, people who report to me because you're holistically helping the people. And when you do that, sellers come alive. So many organizations, so many leaders focus on what's the number, what's the Salesforce updates, and all of that is great. But if your people are not waking up inspired, if their dreams are not cultivated so that they can understand how the company's mission can be linked with their dreams, well, then you've got people who are coming to a job and clocking in versus waking up inspired and wanting to do the hard work to help your company succeed. It's a very different place to operate. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.